right, episode 62 with Delane Ross is about to start, and it's another great episode. So we're going to talk about kettlebell training and kind of how the RKC and Strong First kind of first came to be. We're also going to talk about a little bit about business and starting your own gym from scratch as Delane went through it herself and was even living out of her gym like most coaches do. And we're also going to get into how she was dealing with alcoholism. Now, this is kind of the first time I ever had someone on the show that I was open about it to kind of put out that information out there. So pay attention and who knows, you might get something out of it because a lot of our our clients or people in general might be dealing with you know, using alcohol as a stress reliever, and it might get out of hand. So it's nice to kind of get the perspective of someone going through it themselves. And let's get this show on the road. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Cut the Shit, Get Fit. I'm your host, Rafael Matuszewski, and joining me today is the lovely Delene Ross. Say hello. Hi, how are you? <laughs> uh, so to start us off, I always ask all my guests, what do you got planned for the weekend? Ooh, I had three concerts last weekend, so I'm looking forward <laughs> to not doing much this weekend. Uh, we're touring the new Falcon Stadium tomorrow, but other than that, uh, not a whole lot, which I'm excited about. Awesome. What concerts did you go to? Oh, geez, I don't want to admit it. Uh, <laughs> we went to Counting Crows, Matchbox 20, and then we went to a funk festival that Babyface was headlining in Charlotte. Awesome. That, that, that's a busy weekend, definitely. <laughs> Something. Uh, so for the audience, can you tell them who you are, what you do, and how did you get into this industry? Um, my name is Delane Ross. I, I guess predominantly I'm a senior instructor for Strong First, so I teach the kettlebell arm of their certifications. I uh, used to own a gym for eight years, sold that to do more instructor training. Um, I got into it because I didn't have time to go to the gym, and I stumbled upon kettlebell training based on a recommendation from the radio DJs on the local station and Brett Jones, and if you guys follow Kettlebells, he's pretty much the head of Strong First under Pavel right now, was just the guy at the gym down the street, took me under his wings, and the rest is history. Wow. So the radio show knew about kettlebell training. Now that's freaking cool. <laughs> Which like radio station, Like how, how did they advertise like kettlebells? Well, it was interesting. I um, So I was always active. I played sports and did cheerleading, uh, waitressed all through college, so I never went to a gym. And then when I graduated, I was like, what's going to happen to me? Like I don't know how to do this thing. The ground doesn't move underneath me. When I run outside like a treadmill and I'd never pick up anything like a bicep curl. So nothing made any sense. And I was working in construction at the time and I was driving my construction truck to work and the radio DJs who were like in their mid to late twenties were talking about some ancient Russian weight training that they kind of stumbled on. And they're like, it's like all the stuff at once and you only have to do it like three times a week, you know, in total Southern California bro talk. And I was like, well, maybe I could try that out. And, um, it was like the first time non-sport exercise made sense. Pick up heavy things and you get strong. Like, who knew? <laughs> That's so awesome. I, that was January of 2006, and it's pretty much the only kind of training I've done since then. Awesome. So Pavel was just like down the street from you? Like that? That's freaking amazing. <laughs> well, no, Brett Jones. Was. Oh, Brett so Jones. Sorry. The chief instructor now um, under Pavel. So he's his right-hand man. That's awesome. So did at the time, were you going into like the RKC or? 
Yes. So yeah. Brett was one of the five senior instructors for the RKC at the time. So my first, I have RKC tattooed and Strong First tattooed on me wow. right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So he kind of was like. I know you don't do this for a living, but maybe for a hobby, you should get this certification. And back then, the only place you could get kettlebell certified was Minneapolis, Minnesota. And my 26-year-old Southern California non-trainer self thought it was ridiculous to go to Minnesota to get kettlebell certified when I worked in construction. But Brett convinced me, <laughs> and that's the history again. That's awesome. So what's your opinion about like the difference between the RKC and strong first? Cause I remember, I don't know, this was like four or five years ago when they kind of split off and started another company. Like what's the difference between the two companies? Well, I follow Pavel. So when Pavel was the head of the RKC, I was part of the RKC. When Pavel broke off to form strong first, I followed Pavel to go to strong first. So to me, it's just a trademark. I follow whatever. So I'm all for the RKC from 2001 when it came about to 2012 when Pavel split off and then now I'm in strong first because I followed him wherever his, you know, driving of the knowledge goes. Definitely. Um, so were you kind of like disappointed that you had to get another tattoo of strong first on your body? <laughs> no, I think, well, I think the words be strong first, which is what I have tattooed on my foot, transcend weightlifting. Like I think in any area of life, you should put that first. You can, the strong first motto is you can be anything you want, but be strong first. And I think that goes way deeper than weightlifting. So I think it's a kind of cool concept regardless. Oh, I like that. Definitely. Um, so what kind of advice would you give someone if they were looking into getting their RKC or strong first, like their level one, like how would you prep someone for that? Cause it's like, it's a pretty tough certification, especially doing the snatch test for five minutes and a hundred reps of just, yeah, it's, it, it's a tough test. So what kind of like advice would you give someone training and prepping for it? Well, form and technique is going to be most important. First and foremost, a, you have to pass it and B, if you have good technique, it's going to be easier to pass it, the snatch test as well. So I would say find a certified instructor in your area, do at least a couple of sessions with them, depending on their assessment of you and then have them help with a plan because depending on where you are, you know, you can, you can get there from anywhere, but you know, frequency of training and your style of training is going to depend on where you start out and it would help to find someone who knows what to expect to take a look at you first. So for you personally, like when you were prepping to do the test yourself, like what did your program look like? Cause I know there's so many different like methods to build up the capacity for the snatch test. Cause it's, it's a tough one. And especially like for myself, like I weigh 160 and I would have to use a 24 kilo. Like that sucks. <laughs> mm -hmm. But, um, how was your process? Like, how did you program like your whole kind of like build up to the test? Well, I did it 12 years ago. And back then I only had to do 23 reps with a 16. We've changed it a lot. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, how I program people now is the way I like it, and this is kind of a, um, it's a version, it's a spinoff of a, of a program that Brett did, but I, it's a little simpler. So Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Monday, do a hundred snatches with your snatch test bell in as long as it takes. So get your hundred reps in and record your time Wednesday, do as many as you can in five minutes. And then your goal is to, you know, decrease your time on Monday, increase your reps on Wednesday as you go. And then Friday, 
single arm heavy swings with a bell much heavier than your snatch weight. So if you're a female who has to use a 16, do one arm swings with like a 28 kilo. And then for men who have to use a 24, do one arm swings with like a 40 kilo, eight on each side at the top of the minute for about 10 minutes. So that's going to get your grip strength up, which will help your snatches. And then Monday and Wednesday, you're just trying to get closer and closer to the 105 minutes. That, that sounds awesome. Um, the other thing I think, too, is, like, it's almost like a mental game. Like, if you've never, like, if you're a woman, never snatched a 16, or if you're a guy, never snatched whatever your, uh, like, weight bell is supposed to be, I think just trying it without any kind of, like, structure just to know that you can actually snatch it without it, like, falling behind you or getting it above your head, I think is, like, a big mental game. And the moment you kind of get past that, you're like, oh, then I can totally put this in my program. Yeah, and the beautiful thing is that if you're strong enough to do it, endurance comes so much faster than strength. So people can make some pretty substantial gains in a short amount of time with the snatch test. Yeah, like, um, I don't know about Strong First because I'm getting my RKC in December, and I've always had, like, my eye on Strong First, like, through my career. But the only issue is, like, because I live in Canada, they rarely come up here. And, like, the closest for me was like Seattle one year, but I think it like sold out right away. But, um, I don't know if, um, for strong first, it's still the same where like, if I'm 160, I'm using the 24 kilo. And if some guy beside me was 200 pounds, he's still using the 24. And I'm like, man, that sucks. (laughs) Like it'd be so much easier for that guy compared to me. We've actually changed it. And I can't remember what the number is. I think it's 220, but 220 has to use a 28 now. Okay, gotcha. I'm not sure the exact number, but I know we have a higher tier as well. So now that you're so like influenced with kettlebells, like, do you try to use them completely with your clients, or do you still kind of dabble with other training methods? Well, here's my theory: is if you pick up heavy things, you're going to get strong. I prefer the kettlebell because it's really easy to move up and down in weight. You don't really have to do a lot of math. Um, I drive a little mini around town with my kettlebells in the back. It's super easy. Like I can't throw a barbell in a bunch of plates and take them into someone's basement at 6 a.m. and then be at someone else's basement at 7.30 with the same equipment. So I like it because of the ease of use. Now, if someone prefers a barbell, absolutely I'm on board with that as well. It's just for me, it's my preferred tool just because of the ease and efficiency of um, portability and not having to do math when you're training. That's true. I can't only imagine you driving around with so many kettlebells in the mini. That has to have good <laughs> suspension. <laughs> it's it's a really fun it's a really fun deal. Just driving around with my bells all day. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Um, I kind of wanted to get into the swing because like it's such a foundational exercise, and for a general person that has no experience in the gym, it's one of like at least for me with some of my clients is kind of a tough exercise to teach. And I was wondering how you progress a person who has no, like never touched a kettlebell in their life to swing like a badass. Like what's your process behind that? Well, a swing is a dynamic deadlift. So I would never have someone swing until I can see their deadlift. And if they're, you know, like the majority of people I train, they don't know what a deadlift is. So I basically put a bell between their heels, tell them to sit back like someone pulled a chair out from behind them and they can't quite reach it, and sit back, grab the handle, and stand up. And as long as they have that hinge pattern, then I have them take a step back, 
tell them to do the exact same thing, but more quickly and more powerfully, almost like they're jumping, but not going anywhere. So I have them load up like they're going to broad jump and then jump through the floor, which is not going anywhere. And then I have them do that with a bell in their hand. So I throw it behind them, stand up tall. So it's, it can be as simple or as complicated as you want. It's basically sit back, stand up really fast. But then it's like so many other thousands of things, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I, I think the idea of the broad jump is actually really good. I, that's the first time I heard that. I think that would actually help because like you, if you really think about it, it is kind of like a broad jump, but you're not going anywhere. Um, what do you do with clients that like, it's almost like their timing's off or like when you're, they're supposed to come up to the top and snap their hips. It's like their like quads go first and then their glutes. And you're like, no, the reverse of what you're doing, stop that. <laughs> like, how do you kind of cue the right pattern as they come up? There are a few ways to do it. It's hard to talk it through without yeah. showing you. Um, the cue I like a lot is imagine that you're being simultaneously kicked in the butt and punched in the stomach at the same time. <laughs> That's awesome. And if you're close enough to your student to where they're okay with you touching them, which I usually have to know people for years before I'll do this, you can actually, as they stand up, punch them in the butt and in the stomach standing on the side of them. I don't recommend that, um, <laughs> especially if you don't have a license to touch people in the state that you're in. But uh, that's the visual you can give people. No, that's pretty good. Um, the other one I wanted to touch on too is like the Turkish getup. Cause I find a lot of people do some funky things and especially like during when they get to the point where they have to sweep the leg through and kind of get into that half kneel position. Like, do you think it's majority of the issue comes from like the hips or T-spine? Like what's the most common like trends that you see with limitations on that one? Well, I mean, I think it's a lot of this Western society. We sit so much. So people are used to being in flexion. They're not used to being able to open their hips up. Their spines are locked up. I think it's just mobility all around. Is it shoulders as well? Yeah, like I, I think honestly, like I like to get up not just for an exercise, but also like an assessment tool. Because I always, I always start people like with nothing in their hand. And it's so interesting to see like if their knee is going to cave in or where their knee ends up going, like I, I actually use it as an assessment tool sometimes just to see kind of where the per person's at. Yeah. Well, um, the FMS uses it as well, um, as a movement assistant, a movement assessment. And when that FMS book came out, everyone stopped doing heavy get-ups and only did light get-ups. I think that's the biggest problem in the get-up is that people pick one or the other when it's really important to do both. And now I wouldn't say do heavy until you're, you know, completely confident in the movement and own it. But once people get to heavy, I feel like they start leaving out light and it's a two-sided coin that both sides are really important. Definitely. Now I wanted to go back to like the beginning of our conversation. You said you owned a gym for eight years. Is that right? I did a kettlebell only gym. Oh, nice. So what was like, what was the kind of vision that you, when you opened it, like, was it all semi-private? Was it all classes? Like, how did you kind of structure it? Um, well, when I was living in San Diego, I wasn't a big fan of my job and I loved my kettlebell classes and then I got certified and I'm like, you know what? I could do this all the time. And my plan was always to move back to Atlanta anyway. So I basically moved across the country and I wasn't in fitness at all here. I mean, as far as, as a profession, um, opened up my place, lived in the storage room for four of the eight years. Um, and I love, I love everyone's like, was that your rock bottom? I'm like, no, that was amazing. Like I lived in the storage room of my gym. I just woke up and walked outside 
and taught class and then went back to my room. Um, and it was all group classes. Uh, uh, we capped it at 16 people. So pretty small, mostly uh, busy professionals in downtown Atlanta. That was our clientele. Uh, how many square feet did you have? So just over 1700. Okay. Yeah. So classes, that would be kind of tight. <laughs> yeah. Cause that's including my bedroom and a kitchen and a laundry room. <laughs> oh my God. Jeez. Uh, were you just like by yourself or did you also have employees? I had seven instructors and the cool thing about them is all but one of them, um, were promoted from membership. So they all had full-time jobs outside of training, um, started out as members. So people were really forgiving of any mistakes that they made. They were just like happy to see, you know, their fellow person becoming a trainer. And then people were really invested because it wasn't like, Oh, I gotta show up at my job. It was like, Oh, this is my hobby. I get to do this. It's super fun. That's so awesome. So what would your advice be for like a coach that is looking to open their own space? Cause that's kind of a big transition. Cause a lot of times coaches will be, you know, in a big box gym or a private gym training their own clients. And they're like, you know what? I can do this myself. Like what would your biggest piece of advice for someone looking to open up their own space? Um, they have to really want it for sure. Cause it's, it's not easy because when you're a small business owner, especially at the beginning, you have to wear all the hats. So you're the janitor and the accountant and you know, the marketer. So you gotta be willing to do the work. People sometimes think, well, I'll be my own boss and it gets easy. It, it doesn't, but it's rewarding. So it's more enjoyable. It's just not easier in my opinion. Um, and also be aware of all the random laws of your city because like we one time we fine because I didn't have a lit up exit sign over the door and it was a fire hazard. So just make sure you know all the little stuff that you don't think to know because you're training. And it sounds like the people you're talking about already have a clientele, but I did not. And that was my biggest mistake wow. was I opened zero customers with a giant overhead. So get your following first. That's probably the most important thing. That's pretty ballsy. Good for you. Like, I'm just going to open this gym and hopefully people just come. <laughs> That's awesome. I was young and dumb back then, but it worked out. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. What was kind of like the biggest kind of like, I would say not a, like a mistake, but something that really opened your eyes when you opened your business? Like you're like, oh, that makes sense. Why have I been doing it this way for so long? Well, I mean, I think it goes back to like, oh, I should have started out training people in a park with no overhead versus a giant mortgage payment on a space. Yeah. Um, how did you, um, like with your employees, like how did you build a culture that everyone felt like they're on the same team? Because now when you look at a lot of gyms, like gym culture is so huge and like people like Mark Fisher is like just doing just plain amazing stuff out in New York with his gym. Like how did you create a gym culture where people wanted to stay there and have your employees on board? Well, it just goes back to all my employees were paying members first. And then one day we're like, oh, I really like this. Maybe I'll get certified. And then, Hey, do you mind if I teach the Wednesday night at six class? Sure. Why not? So they, they started out as part of the gym versus hiring from without. And the one time I hired externally was probably the biggest mistake because she's a lovely person but she just didn't fit in with the culture of the gym yeah i think that's the hard part is like as a business owner like you're so like motivated to like grow your business and the interviewing part is probably the most difficult because everyone who goes into an interview they're gonna put on their best show for you and you're like oh this person's amazing and then they start working for you and you're like you're a different person <laughs> 
Yeah, and that's another thing. It's like I feel like the timing is sometimes hard. Like, so I would tell people if they find the right person, even if they don't think they can afford to hire someone, go ahead and do it because it's a lot in my in my experience. It's a lot easier to find the money to pay the right people than it is to find the right people. So if you find the right person, go ahead and bring them on board in some capacity. Definitely. Um, I was going to ask, like, have you ever had to fire a client? Because I've been asking this to a lot of different coaches, and it's really interesting to see what everyone's opinion is. And I was kind of wondering if you ever had a situation like that. Kind of. Kind of, okay. (laughs) Um, It's more like on probation. So um, I right now I do in-house private lessons, mostly in my neighborhood. So everyone is really respectful of my time and cancellation policy, except one person. And she will be my only person at 8 a.m. on a Sunday, and I'll have a text when I wake up from 3 a.m. saying she was out too late and she's canceling. Well, I have a cancellation policy that I've never had to use, so I stopped telling people about it because I never had to enforce it. So I had to sit her down before her next renewal and say, hey, you know, if you don't give me 24 hours notice, I'm going to charge you half of the session. And if you don't give me 12 hours notice, I'm going to have to charge you for the full session. I cannot work this way under these conditions, but if you're okay with that, we can continue. So she agreed to it, but I had, I guess I didn't have to fire her. I just had to like enforce the rules because it's just not you know fair to anyone. Yeah. I think that kind of comes down to like, if you create like a solid terms and conditions, kind of like paperwork. Cause even at my gym, like it's 24 hours, like unless it's like a huge emergency and I don't know, like someone's mother died, like, yeah, I'm not going to charge you. But yeah, waking up at like for a client on a Sunday to train them, that's not cool. <laughs> right. At all. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's interesting because I've been talking to coaches about this whole like idea of firing clients. And personally for me, like I wouldn't want to fire a client even if they're being difficult because they're like, they're not good at this stuff, right? Like for coaches, they like working out. And a regular person, they think we're crazy. Like, I'm right. the type of person that if I went to a hotel, I don't check in first. I want to go check out the gym first to see if they have dumbbells. Like, that that's the kind of person I am. So when I have a client that's, you know, maybe not showing up as frequently like he or she needs to, there's probably a reason why. And I kind of want to dig deeper to figure out what's going on to help them. Whereas I know some coaches were like, well it's a bad like representation of my business. And I'm like, eh, I don't think I agree with that completely. So it's kind of interesting seeing how other coaches think on that kind of topic. Well, I mean, I think it all depends on the energy surrounding it. I know it sounds kind of woo woo, but you know, if someone's just not good or like, that's okay. You don't have to be good at it just because someone else is. I think it depends on the attitude around it and you know, if, if they're okay coming once a week because that fits their schedule and they're getting something out of it, great. But if they're complaining, you know, I think it just depends on um, how, like, how it feels to the person and how it feels to the owner. Like it feels icky to charge someone because they're not coming, then that's one thing. But if they're like, hey, I don't mind paying this and coming once a week because I'm still getting something out of it, then that's a different story. And like there's also clients where you'll pick up where they're just doing it because they know they need to, but they really hate it. And you can almost like, you can sense it. Like, like you said, like you can feel it. 
And I just wait for the moment where they like email me or talk to me where they're like, you know what, I'm probably going to discontinue. And I'm like, yeah, I saw it coming. <laughs> like yeah. you, you already know, but you're like, I'm going to give you as much as I can and maybe I can change your mind. But sometimes people just don't match. And I remember one time I had a client request me doing Zumba exercises with her. And I'm like, you know what, that's not what I do. Maybe go to a class for that. Right. Right. Yeah. And that's okay. Like that's perfectly fine. And that's why there's a gym on every corner and they're all surviving, you know, cause even personalities don't have to match, but there's enough work to go around for sure right now. Now, what do you do with clients that do give you a hard time? Like you're giving them all the best advice and you're trying to make them successful, but they're not just giving their side of their effort. Like, do you ever like sit them down or do you kind of like, Hey, we, we, you should totally like get your shit together. Like, have you ever had a situation like that before? I honestly don't have people like that because it, it works itself out where it doesn't stick around. And even when I had my gym, the people with bad attitudes kind of got pushed out by the members. I didn't ever have to really do anything. It kind of regulated itself. Well, you're lucky then. I, I have a, I had a couple in the past couple of years where it's like, you really want to help them. Like one person in particular I'm thinking about is like, He's in his early 60s, um, handful of grandchildren, and he'll go through like, you know, he'll be super consistent for three months and then disappear for two. He's back on his high blood pressure meds. And then he comes back to the gym. He's like, oh, I need to control this stuff because, you know, I have grandkids. And I'm like, okay, well, like, let's get serious about it. And he just goes through a cycle like that back and forth. And all I'm thinking about is like, dude, you just have to show up. That's all you got to do is just show up. Right. I don't know. It's it's tough, like dealing with those kind of people because you you can see how their life can kind of deteriorate, and you're almost like responsible for them, so you kind of feel bad, but at the same time, you can't want it more than the client. Right. Right, and it's hard because you want you want what's best for them for sure. Because why we do what we do. Yeah. Um, I kind of wanted to jump into nutrition and kind of get your take on it because there's so many different methods out there that coaches follow. Like, do you do the macros thing, calories, habits? Like, what is your whole process for that? Well, what I do for myself and what I suggest for other people are not necessarily the same thing. Um, (laughs) So to go, my friend Josh Hillis, he's, you know, pretty big in weight loss, the weight loss world. He's out of Colorado. But he says, and I totally agree with him, that the diet that works is a diet that you stick with. So um, I also am a moderator for the Whole30 Forum. I am a big fan of everyone trying at least one, if not two, Whole30s in their lives to just get an education on how different foods affect them. Um, I think that's a really good baseline. It's only 30 days. You can do anything for 30 days. Personally, um, I pretty much haven't eaten any wheat in about seven years Um, I follow a ketogenic diet, 75% fat, um, 20% protein, 5% carbohydrates myself, but I don't think that that's the answer for everyone because, you know, some people just aren't willing to do it. And if you're not going to stick with it, it's not going to work. But the one thing I do think across the board is I think that wheat and sugar are bad. Um, and I don't think that anyone should eat wheat or sugar personally, but as far as, you know, a lot of the other variations, whatever you're going to stick with is going to work for you. Do you feel at all like the whole 30 is kind of like too restrictive at all? 
No, because I mean, it's no limit. It's it's not a diet. It's not a whole three three sixty five. If it was a whole three sixty five, absolutely not. But the purpose of a whole thirty is to take out possibly inflammatory foods. And then if you do a whole 30 right, the most important days are days 31 through 38 because that's the reintroduction phase that people don't do. So how you're supposed to do it is you do your whole 30 and you eliminate, you know, grains, dairy, sugar, alcohol, and legumes. And then you're supposed to add them back like day 31, eat, you know, cheese for breakfast, um, ice cream for dinner. But you're just like trying to do it in a vacuum and that ice cream has sugar and dairy. And then you go back to Whole30 for two days to see if dairy affects you. And then you're supposed to do it with wheat. And then you're supposed to do it with legumes. And what I learned is that I don't have any noticeable effects from dairy. So I'll eat dairy now. Wheat, on the other hand, makes my face break out. So I don't eat wheat at all. Um, legumes just aren't worth it to me. So I don't really eat beans because they're pushing more optimal options off the plate. But I feel like everyone should do that education once just to see because they're not saying you can never have these foods again. But if, for example, wheat makes your face break out and your great aunt makes carrot cake for your birthday every year, as mine does, um, I'm going to eat that birthday cake because it means a lot to me. But on the other hand, if there's a sandwich in a break room at a conference, I'm probably not going to eat a not delicious sandwich just because it's there because I know what it's doing to me. So I really, I don't think anyone should follow a whole 30, whole 365, but I do, they do think they should do it once for the education of how foods are affecting them. Yeah. I think you said the big thing there is like on day 31, the reintroduction to all the foods that they took out. Cause I think most people look at the whole 30 and they're like, okay, 30 days, I'm going to cut all this stuff out. I'm going to lose a bunch of weight, but they don't do that second portion. That's like really crucial for yeah, them. Yeah. And they kind of go in a cycle of like, I'm going to cut everything out for 30 days, two weeks or a month of just going back to what you were doing before and you gain your weight back and then you do it again. And it's kind of like a vicious cycle almost. Yeah, I mean, I was guilty. The very first one I ever did, I fell face first into everything I couldn't have on day 31. But then <laughs> it's like, you just did all this work, like just do the extra week to get the, like, get out of it what you really are supposed to be getting out of it. Yeah. Like I think over the years, like, I had so many clients in the past where they're like, oh, I'm going to do this cleanse. I'm going to do this detox. I'm going to do this diet. And I've always been like, don't do it. It's stupid. They're going to do this. You're going to have that, blah, 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 blah. But now it's like, this is the first time where my clients are like excited to try something different with their diet. And I'm like, I'm not going to you know, stop them, but I'm going to have like a plan in place after they're done whatever cleanse they found online. Like if it's a seven day cleanse, what are we doing on day eight to make sure right. you don't go back to whatever happened? And a lot of people in our industry sometimes don't think that way. They look at the whole 30 and they're like, no, don't do it. It's bad for you. But it's kind of like an experiment almost like figure out what works best for your body almost. Right. Like they, I mean, they're even marketing it as an education, Dallas and Melissa, like you're supposed to be learning what you can and can't eat without side effects. And then who says you can, you can have them forever if you want, as long as you decide that it's worth the side effects. But it was, it's interesting. I, th I can't remember how many weeks ago I had uh, another guy on this podcast and he was just ripping into the whole 30 and like, I'm really open to a lot of different methods but I like having this podcast because I have so many different opinions. And uh, it's kind of interesting how now I think this is the first time where I had one person completely on one end of the spectrum and then you on this side of the spectrum. But I always try to find like 
the good and the bad. Like, what can I use from the whole 30? What can I use from this? What can I use from this? And honestly, as long as a person's not kind of addicted to diet hopping to find like the golden nugget that's going to solve all their problems, why not do it? I mean, I, if you told me it was a whole 365, I would say that's dumb. <laughs> because you, like, yeah. that's not realistic. But I do think you should do it just like one time just to see. And once you know, then you can make your own decision. So with your own clients, when they ask you for like diet advice, do you tell them to do the whole 30 or like what would you suggest to them? I recommend I recommend it. And if they're like, absolutely not, then we'll find something else. Um, but if, if I could tell people one thing, it's to limit sugar as like added sugar as much as you possibly can. And I think that's I, the big one too. Yeah. <laughs> and it's in everything. Yeah, it's honestly like you look in your fridge and like every condiment, it's there. If you look in breads, it's there. Like it's it's everywhere. Everywhere. I no, think, in fact, like still has such a bad rap. And like that was like decades ago that you know not even real research that said fat was bad, but everyone's still afraid of fat, but not sugar. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah, like fat is the probably the last thing you should like worry about unless you're like eating deep fried foods every single day. But usually that's not the case for most people, but deep fried foods, the fat's not even the problem. It's (laughs) the breading and the kind of oils. Yeah, definitely. Um, have you ever seen that? uh, What the health, uh, documentary on Netflix? I watched some of it. So I can't speak completely. Um, intelligently, I, I'll tell you why I turned it off. I turned it off because it seemed like random pieces of data from a bunch of different research, like random research papers. Like, Oh, I just took this because it supported what I had to say, but, and then this one random thing from this other thing. And I'm like, oh, I don't know about this. Yeah. I, I just feel like it's so irresponsible for like Netflix to produce a documentary like that. Cause they have such a huge reach and it's just like the cherry picking method of like, Oh, this study said this, we should put it into the documentary. And it's like, just confuse more people. Like, just let's, uh, let's just screw them up, up more about this whole food industry and not not know what to do when it comes to eat, eating healthy. And it, it sucks for us coaches where a client, like, I would say majority of all my clients watch that. And they're like, oh, so what do you think? Like, what, what should I do? It's like, keep doing the same thing that you're doing, honestly. Okay, yeah. So we pretty much agree on that. Yeah. <laughs> So. I think the one thing I watched was uh, I don't know if you saw it on Facebook. So someone posted an, uh, a doctor watching it and they just cut it into like a 10 minute video of like the most outlandish thing that they said on that documentary. And the doctor's like mouth would just like drop. He's like, this is a documentary. Like, how could people put this together? So after watching that and watching a little bit of it, I'm like, honestly, it's not worth my time to watch the whole thing because I just I I feel like the food corporations, especially in America, have a lot of control over people, and it's just it's scary. Yeah, I will tell you which one I did like. Well, I I mean I've got some beef with it because, well, Fathead, Fathead I thought was really good. How it uh, talks about how the whole you know propagation—it's not even a word—of you know fat being bad came about, and um it talks a lot about, you know, how fat's not bad for you. Fat doesn't make you fat. You know, inflammation is all these problems and that's what causes heart problems. It's really good, but he was basically, um, seeking out to disprove supersize me. So he ate for 30 days from McDonald's only, but he ate 
um, like everything except the bread. He kept it under, I think, I think he kept it under 50 grams of carbs. Maybe it was a little bit more than that, but he kept it pretty much low carb, high fat and lost weight and all of his blood levels, um, were better when he got his blood work done. All his levels were better. Uh, I wish he had proven his point with better quality food choices. But other than that, I thought it was a really good job of like basically talking about how you can find research to support anything that you want. If you just throw all the other stuff out, um, and talked a lot about, you know, all the trans fat that replaced the saturated fat because saturated was fat was bad and it's really not. And it's good. It's a good one. I thought, huh. is that on Netflix or is that so from somewhere else? Uh, it was. It's called Fathead. Tom Naughton did it. He's kind of in the low carb, you know, arena. Uh, I don't. I think you can find. I think you can find it in its entirety in YouTube, just broken up into pieces. Okay. Yeah, because I haven't heard of that. That sounds interesting. Because I remember it's, when Super Size Me came out, and it, I had a tough time watching that. Because like, I can't remember how far he got into it, but he's. You could see how slow he started feeling. <laughs> And just, like, downing a burger again and again. I was like, I don't think I could continue watching this. I just feel bad for him. Yes. I did have a friend who saw that uh, documentary, and the next day was like, I'm changing my life, and lost 60 pounds in, like, four months. So there's something good about that. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Um, The other question I wanted to ask, like, you as a person, are you struggling with anything? Because I started asking all my guests, because a lot of clients that hire coaches they think they're like these perfect individuals that figured life out so i'd be kind of curious what are you struggling with right now as far as uh it could be training nutrition life anything honestly well i guess i can kind of segue i'm not i wouldn't say struggling but i'm in the process of um founding the atlanta chapter of a drug and alcohol addiction recovery gym because I decided about eight months ago to get sober myself. So at one point I was very much struggling and I kept, I, the reason that I uh, made that decision was I did a really good job of keeping that part of my life and my professional life separate. And when they started colliding, I was like, Oh shit. Oh, you said I could curse. Yes. I was like, Oh shit. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Like get it together or, you know, I'm going to lose everything. So Luckily, like, I didn't have anything that was, like, absolutely crazy, horrible happen to me, but, like, my professional life was getting dangerously close to my alternate life. And then now I'm like, well, I think it's my calling to use my, um, I guess, gift in teaching fitness to help other people. And it's not a for sure thing, but um, I'm talking to Phoenix Multisport, which is an addiction recovering gym that has seven locations around the country, but they're based out of Denver. I was actually out there couple weeks ago visiting them but the plan is to um start the atlanta chapter of that so that's my um my project right now with what i was like what's the biggest struggle in my personal life is addiction wow so how much were you drinking oh geez my parents don't even like i mean every day like being self-employed is like i would get done with my morning students and i would go to my really good friend manages the bar so i'd be at the bar 15 minutes before they open at 10 45 in the morning with my laptop technically doing work, but drinking Jameson shots all day while I did work. Yeah. So I'd work from like six to 10 and then drink the rest of the day. Wow. Interesting. Yeah, it was bad. It was bad. <laughs> did, how did that, like, how did you feel when you had to like work out? Cause I can only imagine if you're like drinking shots from after 10 AM, like that's a, uh, that would definitely affect your performance doing kettlebell swings. 
Well, it's a lot of practice. I had a lot of practice doing that. So <laughs> <laughs> awesome, build up a tolerance, right? I don't. It's not awesome. I don't recommend it for anyone. Um, and I'm very, very glad to have left that part behind. But I mean, it is the truth of where I was for about two years. So, uh, yeah. What What was your kind of like tipping point where you're like, okay, shit, this is getting out of control. I need to fix this. Or like, did you have someone close to you to kind of like give you the realization? Like, how did that whole thing start? Um, I basically woke up the day before my birthday last year. So my sobriety date is the day before my actual birthday. Um, so I was like, all right, I'm in my late thirties now. I just hit 37. That's officially no questions about it. Late thirties. And I'm never going to be what I know I'm supposed to be. If I continue this, like I'm going to be average at best and then like hurt someone from a you know stupid drunk driving accident or something at worst, you know? So I was like, I, I can't do this anymore. And I heard an almost audible voice that was like, if you want to be what you want to be, you have to put this down. Wow. Um, so I can't explain it, but that's, that was where I was. How, how did you, st- like, how did you start? Was it just because you were like dealing with something? Like, I- I'm just curious. I've never like spoken to someone that was dealing with something like this. So I'm just more curious for myself. Like, was there something that you were trying to like get over? Like what, what was the cause of it almost? Uh, I mean, I've been a party girl since college, like always. Um, and it's kind of been something that I've, you know, struggled a little bit with all the time, like kind of teetered on the edge. But having my business kind of kept me together. And when I sold that two years ago, I had a passive income that was pretty substantial paired with not a lot of responsibility. And so when you have an addictive personality and you're already like kind of predisposed when you don't have things to do, when you have money to do what you want to do, um, it gets pretty easy to get out of hand pretty quickly. Yeah, and I was just going to ask the next thing is like, do you have an addictive personality? Because I find like smokers and drinkers usually have a, addictive like personalities where it's just like it becomes a habit. It's just like you're kind of like used to it almost. I wouldn't say that with anything else like that. Like knock on wood, that's the only thing that I've ever struggled with. And, you know, people are like, well, it's just willpower. I'm like, what are you talking about? I have the best willpower ever. Like I can go teach a class like hungover more than anybody like oh, <laughs> a rock star like it's just you know I, I think it's just something that you're born with yeah because i can't remember what i was watching this is for smokers though um they figured out that there's some sort of mutation in uh, smokers dna that if they try cigarettes for the first time they'll like get instantly addicted compared to someone who tries it in high school and they're like oh, okay, that's it, and then they have no issues. Because I think almost everybody who goes to high school and you have those, like, group of people that start smoking early and you, like, try to be cool and you do it too, but, you know, they end up smoking for the rest of their life, but the person who's just like, oh, I'm going to try to be cool, they end up never smoking another cigarette in their life. So I wonder if drinking is almost the same way, but I could be completely wrong about that. I mean, I don't know. All I know is that I can't do it, so... <laughs> but I'm happy that you even like spoke about it because most people don't really want to talk about it. Like, well, that's another thing too is um, it bothers me about a lot of things and a lot of things have stigma around them. But until I started talking openly about it, I had no idea how many people in my immediate circle were affected that never talked about it. And if they weren't, you know, affected personally, like a super close loved one, like I didn't even know that my best friend's father went to jail for murdering someone in a blackout. Until I started Jeez. talking about 
my problem. Then I'm like, you're my best friend. She's like, well, I just don't talk about this because people just don't talk about this. And so it was a cascade of, you know, I wrote a blog about it. And a lot of my subscribers were like, oh my gosh, my brother is living under a bridge right now because he's a heroin addict. And oh my gosh, you know, my father, this and this and this. And it's like, everyone's affected in some way, like a few degrees of separation, but we just don't talk about it. So for those people who are struggling with alcohol, what's kind of the best advice you would give them to help them get to that next step where they can finally get recovered? I, there's not a right or a wrong way. I mean, I personally go to AA. I think AA is a great thing. Um, it, it's not the end all be all, but um, I don't know. I think just the first step is being honest with yourself and deciding if, you know, something that you can handle on your own or something that you just can't. Okay. And it's not so bad. Like I have a great time now. <laughs> <laughs> did Did you ever look into going to AA or did you feel like you didn't need to? Oh no, I, I go. I oh, you go. Honest. Okay. I just go, I go like twice a week, but it's just nice to be around other people who are dealing with the same stuff you are. So in AA, there's like a, I don't know if it's like a 10 step process or something like that, where you like, how does AA work? Like, cause I have no clue. Um, well it's a 12 step program, but I mean, you don't have to, it's nothing formal. So you just go show up meetings. The only requirement for membership is the desire to not drink. So if you don't want to drink today, you're welcome in an AA meeting. Um, and then there's, you know, the, the steps are pretty straightforward. You know, it's like this, the first step is admitting that you're powerless over alcohol. Like it's pretty simple. Um, and then it's basically constantly taking an inventory of yourself and trying to be a better person and getting out of yourself by helping other people and meditating and stuff like that. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty fun. It's like cool, free group therapy. Basically, <laughs> yeah, it's inter interesting. Like people don't know the power of like just talking to another individual with whatever you're struggling with. But for some reason, what if you feel like you're struggling with something, you feel less of yourself. So you don't want to talk to anybody, but you'd be surprised if like someone's actually generally interested in helping you and you just pour out everything that's been bottled up. You've instantly feel better. Yes, for sure. Um, so the other thing I wanted to ask was like, I've been asking a couple of coaches this too. Do you think the fitness industry on a whole is failing the general population? Yes. Okay. Interesting. Why do you think that? Um, well, I look at the people who I find to be the most genius people in the fitness industry who can help and affect the most people in a positive way. And they're struggling to make ends meet, whereas a gimmicky product that has good marketing dollars backing it is making millions. And, I mean, it's not that hard. Like, eat quality food and pick up something heavy. Like, that's the answer to all of it. There's no need to, you know, buy some kind of wheel that's going to be hidden in the back of your closet in three months because it's, there's no magic bullet. It's just consistency. And it's, I feel like people are getting preyed upon by gimmicky, non-effective products. Yeah, you're hundred percent right. I, I feel the same way. Like there's so many really smart individuals in our industry, but they just don't have the big enough reach. And you see someone like, Tracy Anderson or Gwyneth Paltrow being plastered everywhere as like fitness gurus. And you're like, what the hell? And 
I don't know, like I might have said this a couple times on my show, but there was one guy who created a marketing campaign on Facebook. It's called the Kino Body. Have you heard of it? No. Um, so he was really smart with how he marketed this like Facebook ad. He rented like a giant mansion, a bunch of like models and I think like a Lamborghini or something. And like this like one minute ad was like him talking about how he found this new method of fat loss and you know would batman spend money on stupid supplements and blah 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 and then he's just like walking around this mansion shirtless super ripped with all these girls and he walks into his lamborghini and that's kind of like the gist of the whole commercial and i'm like after watching it i'm like i want to buy this thing right like that's how good it was Mm -hmm. And, like, I looked into what he was doing. It was just, like, intermittent fasting and a regular bodybuilding split. I'm, like, honestly, anybody could have done that commercial. And if someone was really, really smart in our industry and had the dollars, do that. You can get so many people to you with actually good information. I'm, like, that's what we need to do. Like, that's how we need to compete. But I don't know. That's just my whole two cents. (laughs) At least he's marketing good stuff. Like, I mean, I don't work out like a bodybuilder because that's not my goal, but there's nothing inherently wrong with it if you want to get bigger. Um, And I'm a fan of IF as well. But, like, what bothers me is the stuff that doesn't work that people are making that kind of money on. And even the stuff that makes you worse, that's even worse. Yeah, I think the latest thing I've seen, because a client of mine sent it to me, and it was this uh, stick roller that's supposed to roll off cellulite. I'm like... God damn it. Come on, people. I thought we were... Fashion blaster. My, friend, like, my best friend has that. <laughs> of course. <laughs> of course. I'm uh, like, I'm reading your Amazon Prime membership because you're buying dumb stuff. I think the worst thing, though, is um, because my client sent it to me through uh, Facebook Messenger. Now, every Facebook ad I see is that freaking stick roller. I'm like, God damn it. Come on. Oh, my gosh. That's the worst. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, honestly. Um, the last thing I wanted to get into is what's your morning ritual like? Because a lot of clients kind of, again, look at us as like the superior being, being. So what's kind of like your morning ritual, like the first, say, two hours of your day? This is a good one. Um, I start my day super early. Like I have to be at my first student's house at 6 a.m. And I'm not a morning person. Um <laughs> So my first, I will, we'll do my first 30 minutes, <laughs> Sure. but I'm pretty, uh, I'm pretty protective over it. So I start with a gratitude list of 15 things that I'm thankful for in three different categories of five. I read, um, out of the, I'm actually looking at my stack of morning ritual stuff right now. I read out of a, a page out of a book called the wealthy spirit. And it's just daily affirmations for financial stress reduction. Um, I pray for 10 minutes to, you know, whatever, is out there. Um, and then I do a devotion. That's a pretty quick devotion. Um, I usually don't have time to meditate because I'm running out the door with my bulletproof coffee, but then I try to, um, do some sort of meditation when I get back from my morning students before I start with office work. So clear your head. That's pretty good. Most people are like, yeah, I'm just going to wake up, make some coffee. You sound like you you're almost like Tony Robbins when he has like that whole like structured like morning ritual. So good on you. That's awesome. I'm way far behind Tony Robbins, but I'm a big fan. So yeah, I, I think what the coolest thing that he does is that like ice plunge that he does every morning. 
and he's actually like built out a small little like basically like pool for himself just to jump in and out (laughs) oh he has now bought a cryo chamber for his house awesome so he gets in that every day for three minutes I, like, I can only imagine how fast you would wake up if, like, yeah, if you wake up, say, at 5 a.m. and you jump into one of those things, for yeah. sure you're not going to feel groggy. No way, though. That's so cold. <laughs> like, I still wake up a couple days a week at 5 a.m. And honestly, I I don't think there's anything in the world that's going to make me feel like <laughs> that I have energy. It's just the time. Like, there's there's no way that I can get energy that that early. No, I agree. It's just a product of necessity, but, you know, it's rough. Yeah, and I think a lot of coaches have to do it, like, because a lot of people train at 6 a.m., and then you're like, well, I can either make money or sleep in, so choose one. Yeah, that's the only thing, too, is, like, my 6 a.m. has a waiting list, so even if I have a cancellation at 7 and 8, I've still got to do my 6. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Uh, So very last question uh, where can people find you online? Do you have any projects coming out, uh, products, speaking engagements, things like that? You can just plug away. Oh, awesome. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, Facebook, I would be under train with Delane and I just launched, um, a new Udemy course. So you, it sounds like you to me, but it's U D E M Y. It's an online course. Um, I have an at home study for beginners. I have a kettlebells for the busy professional that I just released. That's actually going to be on the um, site Food Matters TV, which if you don't know about them, they're basically like a Netflix for health and wellness. So it's going to launch in November on that site. And that's a great thing to join anyway. They have a lot of the um, mindset documentaries, a lot of the food documentaries, um, a lot of like Wayne Dyer stuff is on there and some yoga. And so that's mainly what I have now. And anyone can use the uh, coupon code 20 off to get 20% off of any of those. Um, it's kind of my ongoing discount on that. So that's, that's my big project right now, that and opening this new gym. Awesome. Uh, so thank you so much for your time. This was amazing. Thank you so much. I enjoyed this. All right. So that's going to wrap up episode 62 with Delane Ross. Hopefully you enjoyed that one. And again, thank you so much for supporting the show. If you can, take it one step further and share the podcast. That'd be awesome. If you have any feedback, feel free to hit me up on social media or email me. And for those who are just fitness enthusiasts interested in weight loss, I do have one spot that just opened for online coaching. So if you're interested, go to my website, cuttheshitgetfit.com and click train with me and there's an application form and we can get started from there and we'll see you all guys and girls next week